One of the threads that I'd like to start talking about has a number of names. Glory, splendor, hierarchy, height, formality. Those words are not modern or familiar or informal. They're not popular in our culture, and yet they contribute not only to beauty, but to joy, to happiness, to a deep human fulfillment. If we're created for royal glory, then royal glory will fulfill us, however unfashionable it is ideologically. Well, there's a lot of things in the Lord of the Rings that reflect that glory. They include exalted, elvish things, but they also include humble, hobbit-like things. But it takes words and language to reveal them. Without language, there's no light shining on that glory. Language doesn't just express the glory. Language somehow incarnates the glory. So much so that it's not clear whether it's the glory of the things that justifies the glory of the words or vice versa. The glory of the words that justifies the glory of the things. It can be shown but not demonstrated. In one of Tolkien's letters, he says, the meaning of fine words, fine, especially for the English, I think, means not just precise, but great, perfect, glorious. The meaning of fine words cannot be made obvious, least of all to adults who have stopped listening to the sound because they think they know the meaning. That's a deadly separation. <laughs> and that accounts for bad Bible translations all over the place. They think the word argent means silver. No, the dictionary says so. It does not. It and silver have a reference to X or the chemical AG. But in each case, X is clothed in a totally different phonetic incarnation. X plus Y or X plus Z. And these do not have the same meaning, not only because they sound different and so arouse different emotional responses, but also because they are not, in fact, used in the same way. We must learn to appreciate the intrinsic heraldic overtones that a word like argent has, in addition to its own peculiar sound, which the word silver does not have. I think that, and this is Tolkien, this writing down, flattening, Bible in basic English attitude is responsible for the fact that so many older children and younger people have little respect and no love for words and very limited vocabularies. One of the most depressing things anybody ever said to me was after I assigned, I think it was G.K. Chesterton, and I expect often reactions on the part of students to gesture and people often don't like him. One said he makes me feel like uh, an idiot. I didn't say anything. <laughs> uh, but this student said, this man treats words as a juggler treats balls. I said, that's exactly right. He said, I hate it. I hate jugglers. <laughs> I said, well, I understand. We all hate pantomimes, mimes for some reason or other, and jugglers are close to that. So I tried to sympathize. He said, no, you don't understand. He said, you live with words, with books. For many of us, this was back in the 60s or 70s, for many of us, words are the enemy. 
words are the enemy? That's like saying air is your enemy. He was serious. Words are our enemies. Terrifying sentence. C.S. Lewis saw The Lord of the Rings as a near miracle largely because of its style, its high heraldic style. That review of volume one that I quoted last time, I'll just quote two sentences from it again to remind you. This book is lightning from a clear sky. The names alone are a feast. They embody that piercing, high, elvish beauty which no other prose writer has captured so much. Here are beauties which pierce like swords or burn like cold iron. Here is a book that will break your heart. As I mentioned last time and forgot the reference, here is Lewis's little quatrain that is a great principle of literary criticism. He judges books by their power to break hearts. Have you not seen that in our days of any whose story, song, or art delights us, our sincerest praise means when all's said, you break my heart. In an experiment in criticism, Lewis defined a great book as one which elicits great reading and defined great reading as conjuring up great literary experiences such as wonder and joy and glory. And this is exactly why Tolkien says he wrote The Lord of the Rings. I quote from the forward to the second edition. Page Roman numeral 16. The prime motive was the desire of a tale teller to try his hand at a really long story that would hold the attention of readers, amuse them, delight them, and at times maybe excite them or deeply move them. We're moved by the Lord of the Rings. That's a power that's very mysterious. Has a lot to do with the style. Going back to Lewis again. Lewis explains the power of this high style, especially in epic, in his book, A Preface to Paradise Lost, which most people who read it are embarrassed to confess they think is better than Paradise Lost itself. Uh, Lewis is speaking of poetry, especially Milton's poetry, but what he says is also true of epic prose like Tolkien's, even more in the Silmarillion, of course. Lewis says, epic is the loftiest and gravest among the kinds of court poetry, a poetry about nobles made for nobles and performed by nobles. We shall go endlessly astray if we do not get fixed in our minds at the outset the picture of a venerable figure, a king or a great warrior or a poet inspired by the muses, seated and chanting to the harp a poem on high matters before an assembly of nobles in a court. From its earliest association with the heroic court, there comes into epic poetry a quality which we moderns find difficult to understand. The quality will be understood by any who really understands the meaning of the Middle English word solemne. This means something different, but not totally different, from the modern English solemn. Like solemn, solemne implies the opposite of what is familiar, free and easy, or ordinary. But unlike solemn, it does not suggest gloom, oppression, or austerity. A great mass by Mozart or Beethoven is as much a solemnity in its hilarious gloria as in its poignant crucifixus est. Feasts, in this sense, are more solemn than fasts. The very fact that the word pompous is now used only in a bad sense measures the degree to which we have lost the old idea of solemnity. In an age when everyone puts on his oldest clothes to be happy in, you must reawaken the simpler state of mind in which people put on gold and scarlet to be happy in. Above all, you must be rid of the hideous idea, fruit of a widespread inferiority complex, that pomp 
on the proper occasions, has any connection with vanity or self-conceit. A celebrant approaching the altar, a princess led out by a king to dance a minuet, a general officer on a ceremonial parade, a majordomo proceeding the boar's head at a Christmas feast, all these must wear unusual clothes and move with calculated dignity. This does not mean they are vain. It means they are obedient. The modern habit of doing ceremonial things unceremoniously is no proof of humility. Instead, it proves the offender's inability to forget himself in the right. We moderns may like dances which are hardly distinguishable from walking, and poetry which sounds as if it might be uttered extempore. Our ancestors did not. They liked a dance which was a dance, and find clothes which no one could mistake for working clothes, and feasts that no one could mistake for ordinary dinners, and poetry that unblushingly proclaimed itself to be poetry. What is the point of having a poet inspired by the muse if he tells the stories just as you or I would have told them? I wonder what Lewis would have said if he had become a Roman Catholic and lived long enough to witness our liturgical holocaust. He goes on, The grandeur which the poet assumes in his poetic capacity should not arouse such a hostile reaction. It is for our benefit. He makes his epic a right so that we may share it. The more ritual it becomes, the more we are elevated to the rank of participants. Well, Tolkien does this, even in the rather familiar, rather hobbit-like, rather, I can't say ordinary, I certainly can't say pedestrian, uh, simple and accessible language of the Lord of the Rings. There are countless stock phrases calculated to produce stock responses, which our ideology frowns on, but our hearts don't. Uh, when he defines Glorfindel, for instance. Let's see if I can find the passage. I remember having a, an argument with students about this. Some loved it and some hated it. Oh. oh could you read it for us? Uh, Glorfindel was tall and straight. His hair was of shining gold, his face fair and young and fearless and full of joy. His eyes were bright and keen, and his voice like music. On his brow sat wisdom. And in his hand was strength. Yeah. Notice the reversed word order of the last sentence. Instead of wisdom sat on his brow, on his brow sat wisdom. Most people do not like at all one translation of the Bible, which I like very much, Ronald Knox's, because he habitually uses reversed word order, especially in the Psalms, for heraldic and, and high things. I was appalled by the fact that that was a sentence a number of students picked out as one of the worst sentences in the book. Stereotype, they said. No, archetype. They don't believe in archetypes. It's all in Plato. What do they teach them in the schools nowadays anyway? <laughs> well, here's an aspect of beauty. It's not the only aspect in The Lord of the Rings, but it's one of those aspects that is healing to our spirit because we don't get it from our culture. And we need it, and we find it here. Which brings us to a second aspect of beauty, which is related but quite different, namely the relation between beauty and goodness. Both of these words have narrowed in modern times so that it's much more of a stretch to make the connection than it used to be. Goodness has narrowed to a moral goodness, and moral goodness in turn has narrowed to duty in a Kantian sort of way. 
Beauty, on the other hand, has narrowed to a certain department of life, the arts or aesthetics. Most primitive cultures don't have a word for art. Everything in life is art. And beauty is purely emotional, that which produces certain reactions. But if you go back to Greek, there's a word that does not exist in the English language. The word kalon, which means both good and beautiful at the same time. And it's specified by another word, kaiagathon, or kagathon, which is a contraction of to kalon kai to agathon, the good and the beautiful. It's great marriage. Well, this marriage of the good and the beautiful which you have in ancient languages and ancient cultures, uh, we've lost. Look at even the architecture of beauty. I don't mean the beauty of architecture. I mean the architecture that culturally expresses a culture's attitude towards beauty. In ancient Athens, if you were a great poet and you won the competition, you would live in the town hall for life and be fed free. The relation between the poet and society is incredibly different. Poets in ancient Greece spoke for everyone or for the gods to everyone. Poets in our society speak only to other poets and a few groupies, uh, and they're almost always revolutionaries. That cultural fact is an expression of a deeper psychological or spiritual fact, namely that beauty and goodness have become divorced. Moral goodness has become drab and unbeautiful, and beauty has become morally dangerous. Edmund Spencer could still woo the readers of his age by imagining virtue as a beautiful woman. But only a century later, Milton could not make the people of our age love his God more than his Satan. Tolkien bewailed both the ugliness of his age and its separation between the good and the beautiful in the essay on fairy stories. He says, ours is an age of improved means to deteriorated ends. That's something I think of every time I go to an airport. There's only one airport. It's cloned. It's very efficient, very ugly. And you almost feel like a clone as you pass through the airports. Uh, you become just another piece of furniture. And we can get as far as we want to go very quickly and very efficiently, but there's nothing there. Sometime I think the pilot is going to say to the passengers, we have good news and bad news. The good news is that we're proceeding very efficiently at 700 miles an hour. The bad news is that we don't know where we are. Tolkien says, it is a part of the essential malady of our days, produces the desire to escape not from life, but from our present time and self-made misery, that we are acutely conscious both of the ugliness of our works and of their evil, so that to us evil and ugliness seem indissolubly allied. We find it difficult to conceive of evil and beauty together. The fear of the beautiful fae, that the dangerous fairy that ran through elder ages almost eludes our grasp. More alarming, goodness is bereft of its proper beauty. Notice he almost contradicts himself here. We find it difficult to conceive of evil and beauty together, but we should. But more alarming, we find it difficult to conceive of goodness and beauty together. But we should. In the realm of fairy, one can indeed conceive of an ogre who possesses a castle hideous as a nightmare, for the evil of the ogre wills it so. 
But one cannot conceive of a house built with a good purpose, an inn, a hostel for travelers, the whole of a virtuous and noble king, that is yet sickeningly ugly. That can't exist in myth, in fairy tales. But at the present day, it would be rash to hope to see one that was not, unless it was built before our time. I wonder whether this contrast is just in modern culture or in all cultures and in the very nature of things. I think half of it is the, the connection between evil and beauty. I think at all times and places, the beauty of a Helen of Troy or of a Cleopatra has lured men to destruction. And a beautiful face can at any time mask an ugly soul. And there have always been beautiful but wicked queens, like the White Witch in Narnia or the Snow Queen in Hans Christian Andersen. And also, there's always been the reverse. Somebody like Strider, who seems foul, yet feels fair. Like all the prophets, like the hick town of Nazareth, and the cold, dirty old stable in Bethlehem, and Calvary. God sends his best gifts in ugly wrappings, but they're not really ugly. I would argue that the most beautiful movie ever made is Mel Gibson's The Passion, which is also the ugliest. But the contrast between the good and the beautiful, I think, is not in the nature of things, but only in a fallen world. Only in a fallen world is beauty a temptation, or as Proverbs puts it, vain. And that's only because God trains us by what C.S. Lewis calls the principle of first and second things, in that great essay by that title. Putting first things first is the key to the health of second things. Now, beauty is a great thing, but it's a second thing. It is very good. It's a form of goodness, but it's not as good as moral goodness. So the worship of beauty for beauty's sake or art for art's sake will destroy not only the true worship of God, but also true art. In The Silmarillion, a good example of this principle of first and second things is the great elf Theonor, who puts his own greatest work of art, the Silmarils, before his moral duty. He will not give up the jewels, just as in The Lord of the Rings, the proud will not give up the ring. Theonor envies the Valar, refuses his duty and his destiny, unlike Frodo. Even Niggle, Tolkien's gently self-mocking self-portrait in Leaf by Niggle, eventually had to learn the principle that art must be put second to morality. So he put the finishing of his leaf next to the deeds to his needy neighbor, Parrish. And that was the only way to attain the perfection of his art. But even that way of putting it, put art second to morality, put beauty second to goodness, is misleading because it assumes that beauty and goodness are separate entities which by nature clash. I think that's not so. I think beauty is one of the most important forms of goodness. Beauty is very good. And goodness is the highest form of beauty. The single most beautiful thing in this world is a saint. Contrast Mother Teresa's face, one of the ugliest faces in the history of the world, all those wrinkles, with the face of Madonna, empty, vapid, shallow, meaningless. Mother Teresa is much more beautiful. Beauty, as well as goodness, is an attribute of God, and therefore eternal and necessary. And since God is one, beauty and goodness must be ultimately one. So beauty is good. We need beauty, as well as we need morality in our lives. Much more important than other things, like money. If you had a choice between being a multi-billionaire and seeing ugly things around you all the time, or being very poor, but seeing something you regarded as very beautiful every time you opened your eyes, 
you would certainly be much happier being poor and beautiful than being rich and ugly. The reason for that is that we're made in God's image, and God's a creative artist. Tolkien's famous poem on fairy stories about subcreation. Man, subcreator, the refracted light, through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. We still make by the law in which we're made. That poem, by the way, was, uh, was written to refute the idea of a friend of his, he says, who came up with a silly definition of poetry as breathing lies through silver. Guess who that friend was? C.S. Lewis, before his conversion. Lewis described himself as a converted pagan living among apostate Puritans. But he himself had something of a Puritan streak in him, which itself was converted. Well, Lewis's law of first and second things applies certainly to the relation between beauty and morality above it, but it also applies to the relation between beauty and efficiency below it. If you sacrifice morality for beauty, you'll lose beauty. If you sacrifice beauty for efficiency, you'll lose efficiency. And that's Tom Shippey's point in commenting on The Scouring of the Shire. I would argue that the second best book ever written about The Lord of the Rings is Tom Shippey's J.R.R. Tolkien, author of the century. I think the first one is Stratford Caldecott's Secret Fire. Here's what Tom Shippey points out in commenting on the chapter that Peter Jackson totally omitted as non-negotiable, impossible, we could never do it, we knew from the beginning we couldn't do it. And there's absolutely no technological reason why he couldn't. And the obvious reason is the same reason he changed the character of Faramir. It contradicted the ideology of Hollywood. It's an attack on state socialism. Anyway, here's Tom Shippey's point in commenting on that scoury of the Shire. The point is about the relation between beauty and efficiency. This country wants waking up and setting to rights, says the leader of the Hobbiton ruffians, as though he had some goal beyond mere hatred and contempt for the Shire. And it seems to be more industrialization, efficiency, economy of effort, all things often and still wished on the population of modern Britain. The trouble with that, as developments after the publication of The Lord of the Rings have tended to confirm, was that the products of efficiency-driven were often not only soulless, but also inefficient. Why do Sharky's men knock down perfectly satisfactory old houses and put up in their place damp, ugly, badly built, standardized ones? No one ever explains this. But the overall picture was one all too familiar to post-war Britons. The Saramans of this world rule by deluding their followers with images of a technological paradise. But one often gets, however, as has become only more obvious since Tolkien's time, are the blasted landscapes of Eastern Europe, strip-mined and polluted, even radioactive. Worship efficiency, and the god will destroy itself as well as you. I think beauty is the child conceived by the union of goodness and truth. Or maybe the bloom on the rose of goodness and truth. And thus it's not only good, but it's heavenly. And while beauty cannot of itself save us or substitute for either goodness or truth, contrary to Keats's famous moving but muddled sentiment that beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know, yet it contributes to the salvation of the creation and of souls. 
If you had the choice of going to a church where true orthodox doctrine was taught and true morality was preached, but everything was ugly and unattractive, or going to one where only some true orthodox doctrine was taught and only some true morality was preached, but was irresistibly attractive, I think you would choose the second. I think you would rightly choose the second. To fall in love with at least half of God's package deal is better than to have it all but not fall in love with it. As the poet says, in heaven the poets shall have flames upon their heads. Well, we've been talking about beauty. Let's talk more about the beauty of language and thus talk a little more about language. The goal of the philosopher is logos. Logos, like its Chinese counterpart Tao, is an incomparably profound and multivalent word, which has many meanings. Essentially three. First, the ultimate nature of things, the one source of all essential reality and intelligibility. Second, human intelligence, wisdom, understanding, truth as the knowledge of that essential reality. And thirdly, right language, right communication or speech or explanation or word or argument, that is the expression of that knowledge. Philosophy studies all three meanings of logos. The first is metaphysics. The second is epistemology. And the third is philosophy of language. There was an ancient skeptic, Gorgias the Sophist, who said, there is no being. If there were being, it would not be knowable. And if it were knowable, it would not be communicable. One way to summarize those three statements is in the same word. There is no logos. If there were logos, it would not be logos. And if it were logos, it would not be communicated as logos. There is no essential form. If there were, it could not be known. If it could be known, it could not be put into language. That's total skepticism. We have now entered the third age of philosophy because this is the skepticism which we find in deconstructionism. Metaphysical skepticism is just nominalism. There are no universals, no platonic forms. That's what killed ancient medieval philosophy. Epistemological skepticism is a kind of nominalism that denies universal concepts or knowledge of universal truths. That's what you find in David Hume. But linguistic skepticism uh, denies even the intentionality or meaning or significance or pointing power of words. My favorite slogan for deconstructionism is in a poem by Archibald MacLeish called Ars Poetica. He says, a poem should be palpable and mute, like globed fruit. A poem should not mean, but be. Fruit is an object. The word fruit means fruit, but fruit is simply fruit. Now he's saying words should be like that fruit. They don't mean anything. They're just things to manipulate. That's why the deconstructionist has an obsession with power. Mao Zedong was a deconstructionist. One of his famous sayings, we will conquer the world because you fools think that words are labels that are properly or improperly pasted onto things. We know that words are little dynamite sticks in people's minds and we hold the fuse. That's the completest form of skepticism. Now, Tolkien helps us to reverse that, not by philosophical argument, but by showing as opposite as possible a philosophy of language. 
First of all, it's by seeing that words are lovable. Words are beautiful. This makes sense for a Christian for whom the most beautiful thing human eyes have ever seen is called the word of God. Tolkien loved words, especially proper names. Proper names name persons, which alone are made in God's image. One of the great philosophers of our time, John Paul II, said, man is the only thing God created for its own sake. That's a person. That's his image. Well, proper names are the linguistic expression of that. Tolkien loved proper names so much that he gave all of his favorite things many names, not just one. He loved to linger long over the art of naming. For instance, in the Silmarillion, Tenequetel, the elves named that holy mountain, and Oyolose, everlasting whiteness, and Elerina, crowned with stars, and many other names beside. But the Sindar spoke of it in their later tongue as Amon Wilos. And when speaking of the two trees, Telperion, the one was called in Valinor, and Silpio, and Ninquilote, and many other names. But Laurelin, the other was, and Malinalda, and Kulurien, and many names in song beside. Why more names than one? T.S. Eliot knew. In his sage advice at the beginning of his book, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, he says, the naming of cats is a difficult matter. It isn't just one of your holiday games. You may think at first that I'm mad as a hatter when I tell you a cat must have three different names. If even a cat, how much more a mountain? Words were important to Tolkien, not just instrumentally, but metaphysically. Not just through their power and effect on human reading and thought and life, but also through their source and basis and foundations. We did not invent language, we inherited it. In the beginning was the word. A word was the origin of the world. Christ in Genesis, Genesis 1 verse 3, and God said, that's Christ. First there was saying light, then there was light. And a word was the origin of Tolkien's first published work, The Hobbit, and thus its sequel, The Lord of the Rings. Here's Tolkien's account of that event. All I remember about the beginning of The Hobbit is sitting correcting school certificate examination papers and the everlasting weariness of that annual task forced on impecunious academics with children. On a blank leaf I scrawled, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. I did not and do not know why I did nothing about it for a long time, but it became The Hobbit in the early 30s. And since The Hobbit was a success, a sequel was called for One Thing Leads to Another. Thank that dull student who wrote a dull examination paper for the greatest book of the 20th century. Earlier, Tolkien's whole mythology of the Silmarillion and its offspring of The Lord of the Rings began with words. Tolkien first invented the Elvis language, then he needed a race to speak it, the elves, then they needed a history, and then a world. Well, it was language that came first. He says about the Ents in one of his letters, The Ents seem to have been a success. As usual with me, they grew out of their name rather than the other way around. Everything grows out of its name. Because of this implicitly divine source of language, it has power and intoxication. Tolkien found languages literally intoxicating. Not to his body like alcohol, but to his spirit. 
He writes in letter 163, Most important, perhaps after Gothic, was my discovery in Exeter College Library when I was supposed to be reading for honor mods of a Finnish grammar. It was like discovering a complete wine cellar filled with bottles of an amazing wine of a kind and flavor never tasted before. It totally intoxicated me. Now, can you imagine yourself in a library picking up a volume of Finnish grammar, an alien language in which you know no word at all, and being more intoxicated than you would by wine? No? Well, then you can't write The Lord of the Rings. That's why you can't write The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien also writes, It was just as the 1914 war burst on me that I made the discovery that legends depend on the language to which they belong. And that a living language also depends on the legends that it conveys by tradition. For instance, the Greek mythology depends far more on the marvelous aesthetic of its language and so of its nomenclature of persons and places and much less on its content than we realize. Which is why translation is impossible. God certainly in his providence raised up not only the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, as part of the providence for the incarnation, but also the Greek language. No language in the history of the world is a more fitting conduit for divine revelation. Well, modern readers not only don't understand that, they dislike it. They dislike the plethora of names in The Lord of the Rings, and especially the Silmarillion. One reviewer complained, The Silmarillion sounds like a Swedish railway conductor with a head cold announcing stations. I would call that a fascinating oral experience, intoxicating like wine. In fact, I was once, not in Sweden, but in Norway, and there was a railway conductor with a funny voice, and he was announcing stations, and it was like singing. Tolkien's love of every word gives his language a character that most modern language doesn't have. One expression of that is his penchant for capital letters. The fashion now is to decapitalize whatever you can, and decapitalizing is like decapitating. But Tolkien's words are heavy and vertical. They're a bit like Hebrew. Max Picard says in The World of Silence, the architecture of the Hebrew language is vertical. Each word sinks down vertically, column-wise, into the sentence. In languages today, we have lost the static quality of the ancient tongues. The sentence has become dynamic. Every word and every sentence speeds on quickly to the next. Each word comes more from the preceding word than from the silence and moves on more to the next word in front of it than to the silence. The Hebrew language is a quiver full of steel arrows, a firmly secured anchor rope, a brazen trumpet splitting the air with a few piercing tones. It can say little, but what it says is like the beating of hammers on an anvil. That makes you want to learn Hebrew, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, the Silmarillion is like Hebrew. Of course, there's a lot of influence of the Hebrew language, as well as Finnish and Icelandic and some Celtic languages. But in the Silmarillion especially, every word seems like a, a thunderbolt from heaven, a miracle. That's why he has so many capital letters. That's also why there's so many nouns, both common nouns and proper nouns. That's the Anglo Saxon style. The words are large, like buildings, heavy and slow, like glaciers. The sense of height and weight of words suggests the sense of ontological height and weight, kind of supernaturalism. The reader is lifted out of himself 
into what Lewis would describe in Surprise by Joy as immense Arctic skies into the realm of splendid, remote, terrible, voluptuous, and celebrated things. And he describes the Fisher King, Ransom, in that hideous strength this way. Great syllables of words that sounded like castles came out of his mouth. Tolkien, too. The relation between words and things is, for Tolkien, the opposite of what we think. Because his language is not merely a device for communicating thoughts and feelings or for eliciting them. The words aren't labels for concepts. Rather, it's in the words that the things live and move and have their being. And in the words, they come to us. Heidegger defines language as the house of being. I think Tolkien would like that. I don't claim to know what Heidegger means most of the time, but I think this is a pretty clear sentence from his introduction to metaphysics. Words and language are not wrappings in which things are packed for the commerce of those who write and speak. Rather, it is in words and language that all things first come into being and are. It is for this reason that the misuse of language in idle talk, slogans, and phrases destroys our authentic relation to beings. If I come to you only in my body, then what you do to my body, you do to me. As Christ says, what you do to my little ones, who are my body, you do to me. Apply that to the relation between words and things. If words are the house of things, then what you do to words, you do to things. Which is why propaganda is so powerful. Remember in 1984, the most powerful weapon of the totalitarian state is the new dictionary. They revise language. If you don't have a word anymore, like liberty, you don't have the concept. A concept is like a person. If you're homeless and you don't have a house to live in, you're not going to live very long. You're going to die. So if you don't have a word, the concept is going to die pretty soon. And once the concept dies, the reality dies. So the attack on metaphysical reality comes through the attack on language. Confucius, the most successful reformer in the entire history of the world, who transformed the world's largest nation from a period of chaos, the period of warring states, to a 2,100-year-long history of basic unity and peace and stability, had something like 600 principles of reform. Someone once asked him, if you could do only one, what would you do? He would say, the reformation of language, the restoration of proper words. The word poetry means making, literally, poesis. Poetry is fundamental speech. Prose is less fundamental speech. Prose is fallen poetry. Poetry is not decorated prose. The original language for Heidegger and for C.S. Lewis and the magician's nephew was music. Now, music usually has words, so words are in the music. But those words are words for music. Take them out of the music, and they're still poetry, but make them fall one step further, and they're prose. Make them fall one step further, and they're mathematics, which is the only totally univocal, unambiguous language in the world. The most ambiguous language in the world is music, and therefore it's the richest. How will the Tower of Babel be undone? How will we understand each other in heaven? Will we all speak English or Dutch or Latin? No, we'll all speak music. 
Just as words can create for Tolkien, they can also uncreate in the Silmarillion. He says, Melkor is no longer counted among the Valar, and his name is not spoken upon the earth. You know, Voldemort in Harry Potter is he who must not be named. Tolkien writes, last of all is set the name of Melkor, he who arises in might. But that name he has forfeited. And the Noldor, who among the elves suffered most from his malice, will not utter it. You remember Gandalf will not utter the words on the ring in the language of Mordor in the Shire. He will not read those words. Only at the Council of Elrond in Rivendell. And even in that safe and holy place, the words summon something of the presence of hell. Ashnag Durbatuluch, Ashnaz Gimbatul, Ashnaz Throkatuluch, Ash Burzum Ishikrimbatul. The change in the wizard's voice was astounding. Suddenly it became menacing, powerful, harsh as stone. A shadow seemed to pass over the high sun. And the porch for a moment grew dark. All trembled, and the elves stopped their ears. Never before has any voice dared to utter words of that tongue in Imladris, Gandalf the Grey, said Elrond, as the shadow passed and the company breathed once more. Now, if you utter those words in English, they still have a little of their power, but not that much. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where their shadows lie. That's threatening, but not as threatening as Ashnaz Gedurbatuluk. Thus, the power of words is based on the fact that real things are found in words. Words aren't things among a world of other things. Things with one additional feature, the ability to point to other things. No, words are the encompassing frame or house of the whole world of things. Things constitute a world only by the creative word of the author. Whether it's a fictional world or whether it's the real world. God speaks and only then does the world come into being. Tolkien speaks and only then does Middle Earth come into being. Corollary, since the things are encompassed by the words, our wonder at the things is encompassed by our wonder at the words. And if we have no linguistic wonder, we will have no ontological wonder. I hope you've either read or seen that numinous play Equus. There's an electrifying scene where a boy who has invented a religion of horse worship since there is nothing in his modern world to worship anymore, invokes the many names of his horse god. It's deliberately shocking, but it's at the same time electrifying. When you read the Bible, what's the dullest part? The genealogies, right? For ancient readers, those are the most wonderful parts. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it is still widely believed that when the name of a saint is pronounced, the saint becomes really present. And the icons of any saint in the church make that saint present somehow. Presence is not a single thing. It's a range of things. Or remember that scene in, I think it's still the most successful series in TV history, Roots. Remember the scene at the end where the black family, who's finally freed and finally entering their promised land, solemnize this event by reciting their Genesis account. The words that had been faithfully preserved words for word and repeated orally for generations. One day, Kunta Kinte went out to fell a tree and make a drum. Then follows all the list of ancestral names. That's the most memorable scene in the whole series. Or the scene in Hemingway's 
Is it for whom the bell tolls, or is it a farewell to arms, where the protagonist, who's totally disillusioned with war and human folly, says, all words have become meaningless except the proper names of the dead. He's in a cemetery, and he reads gravestones. Those are the only meaningful words. Well, they're at least the most meaningful words. Well, if things come to us in their names, then the power of things come to us in the power of their names. So words have a magical power, a power not just to communicate intellectually, not just to suggest emotionally, but a power which can produce physical effects. Now, here's a claim that most of you will probably be skeptical of, and maybe I'm wrong in thinking that Tolkien believed this, and maybe I'm wrong in thinking that it is in some way true, but maybe I'm not, so contemplate this rather striking notion. Look at Tom Bombadil in The Lord of the Rings. His words save Mary from Old Man Willow, and then they save Frodo from the Barrow White. Why? As he explains, none has ever caught him yet. For Tom, he is the master. His songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. His songs are stronger songs. Are God's songs the strongest songs? Yes. What are God's songs? Prayers? More things are wrought by prayer than the world dreams of. Frodo, too, uses the magical power of words when he calls Tom's name. Two miracles happen. One spiritual and one physical. First, quote, with that name, Frodo's voice seemed to grow strong. Second, Tom actually comes. If we find this unconvincing, it shows how little we have taken God at his word when he repeatedly promises the same thing Bombadil did. To put the biblical promise in contemporary words, you just call out my name and you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you've got to do is call and I'll be there. Yeah, 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 you've got a friend. <laughs> Thus endeth the daily devotional reading for the prophet James. <laughs> I think James Taylor deliberately meant that. Taylor's been through hard times, but he's a very religious man. If you get a chance, uh, listen to his new hymn. It's about two or three years old, but moving. Are there magic words? I think we all know there are. There are operative words. There are words that, whatever you believe theologically, are sacraments. They effect what they signify. I'll give you two that everybody knows are sacramental words. I love you and I hate you. And for anybody who has any liturgical understanding, I baptize thee... Or, this is my body. These are not labels. They're spiritual weapons. They're arrows that pierce through flesh and into hearts. Well, in a lesser but real way, the whole of the Lord of the Rings is an armor-piercing rocket that can get into your underground bunkers, your inner Afghanistans or Iraqs. And the most powerful of these arrows are the proper names, the names of persons or places. When the Black Rider bangs on Fatty Bulger's door in Buckland saying, open in the name of Mordor, all the authority and power and terror of Mordor are really present there. When Frodo on Weathertop faces the Black Rider, quote, he heard himself crying aloud, oh, Elbereth, Gilthaniel. He's speaking in tongues. He doesn't understand Elvish. As he struck the rider with his sword, Afterwards, Aragorn commented on this event. He said, all blades perish that pierce that dreadful king. More deadly to him was the name of Elbereth. Frodo again speaks in tongues in Shelob's lair. 
he cried, and knew not what he had spoken, for it seemed that another voice spoke through his. And when the tiny hobbit with the tiny sword advanced on the most hideous creature in all of Middle-earth with the file of Galadriel, and in the name of Galadriel and Elbereth, she loved coward. And later Sam did the same thing. Quote, Galadriel, he said faintly, and then he heard voices far off but clear, the crying of the elves as they walked under the stars in the beloved shadows of the Shire, and the music of the elves. Gilfelniel, Aelbereth, and then his tongue was loosed, and his voice cried in a language which he did not know. And Sam made Shelob cow again. He is not remembering concepts. He is not merely remembering his little dead picture of the live elves. Somehow those elves are made present. Because Shelob is not afraid of somebody's memories. Shelob is afraid of elves. What's in a name? In the name of Jesus, devils were exorcised from souls. Hell was defeated. Heaven's gate was opened. What's in a name? In a name, the whole universe was created. Everything is in a name. Because that name was the word of God, the mind of God, the Logos. What's in a name? Moses asked God that question at the burning bush, and God answered, I am. There's an old myth of an original language. It's in the Bible, the story of the Tower of Babel, which is beginning to be undone by Pentecost. It's in Plato, in his dialogue, The Cratulus. It's not a popular idea anymore, but it's in a lot of classical literature. Once upon a time, there was not only one language, but the right language, the perfect language. Well, if that is true, that would explain why every proper name of Tolkien's seems exactly right. That's a power even his critics marvel at. When we read those names, we're remembering. We're doing Plato's anamnesis unconsciously. Our cognition is a recognition, a recognition. Our word detector buzzes when we meet the right word, the Platonic idea, the Jungian archetype. We experience discovery rather than invention. C.S. Lewis understood this too. When Mercury descended to Earth in the Descent of the Gods in that chapter in That Hideous Strength, here's how he described it. Quote, it was as if the words spoke themselves through him from some strong place at a distance, or as if they were not just words at all, but the present operation of God. For this was the language spoken before the fall and beyond the moon, and the meanings were not given to the syllables by chance or skill or long tradition, but truly inherent in them, as the shape of the great sun is inherent in the little water drop. This was language herself, as she first sprang at Malaldil's bidding, out of the molten quicksilver of the star called Mercury on earth, but Viratrilbia in deep heaven. The most important proper name to you is your own. In C.S. Lewis's anthology of 365 selections from George MacDonald, the one most readers find the most powerful and unforgettable is MacDonald's commentary on Revelation 2, verse 17. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written in it, which no one knows save he who receives it. Here is MacDonald's commentary on that. And I think this deeply influenced Tolkien, who also loved MacDonald's spirit, though not his style. The giving of the white stone with the new name is the communication of what God thinks about the man to the man. 
It is the divine judgment, the solemn holy doom of the righteous man, become thou blessed, spoken to the individual. The true name is one which expresses the character, the nature, the meaning of the person who bears it. It is the man's own symbol, his soul's picture in a word, the sign which belongs to him and no one else. Who can give a man this, his own name, God alone? For no one but God sees who the man is. Hamlet has an identity crisis until he knows Shakespeare. It is only when the man has become his name that God gives him the stone with the name upon it. For then alone first can the man understand what his name signifies. God's name for a man must be the expression of his own idea of the man, that being whom he had in his thought when he began to make the child and whom he kept in his thought through the long process of creation that went to realize the idea. To tell the name is to seal the success, to say in thee I am well pleased. Finally, the most magical language is music. A word about music in Tolkien. Music is clearly the language of creation. God and his angels sing the world into being. Tolkien begins the Silmarillion this way. In the beginning, Eru, the one, who in the elvish tongue is named Iluvatar, all-father, made the Ainur of his thought, and they made a great music before him. In this music, the world was begun. Notice, it's not that music was in the world, but that the world was in music. This is the music of the spheres in which everything is. This is the song of songs that includes all songs. All matter, all time, all space, all history are in this primal language. Plato knew the power of music. In the Republic, music is the very first step in education in the just society and the very first step in corruption in the bad one. Nothing is more important to the good society, to education, to happiness. Lord of the Rings is full of music, full of singing. One of the indices at the end of the Lord of the Rings lists songs or poems in the book. Proper names, yes. Places, yes. But songs or poems? There's so many. He needs an index. The hobbits sing high hymns to Elbereth and homespun walking songs and bath songs. Like Bombadil, Tolkien is a writer of prose who's bursting with poetry and music. Peter Beagle, in the introduction to a Tolkien reader, calls him a writer whose own prose is itself taught with poetry. T-A-U-T. I think music is an essential part of the elvish enchantment. When the fellowship enters Lothlorien, Sam says, I feel as if I was inside a song, if you take my meaning. And that's how we feel when we enter this whole book. And now I will let you exit from your purgatory and enter the heaven of flint and steel cracking together and producing some sparks instead of just sitting passively. Questions? An observation and a question. Uh, you uh, mentioned, I think, and I'm not going to try to quote you, but something to the effect that uh, people uh, were introduced to orthodoxy through uh, a fairly ugly building uh, versus... Uh, Periodic orthodoxy, a beautiful building, which is the latter, not the former. It's interesting. I 
it wasn't just the buildings. That's a small part of it. But well, go the, on. The, the, uh, physical accoutrements. No, not just the physical. The way the doctrine is presented, the way the morality presented is presented, also has an aesthetic dimension. I don't want to separate the three things as if they're triplets who come together or Siamese twins who are separated. They're dimensions. Jesus taught with grace. John describes him as full of grace and truth. Not just truth, but grace and the grace of truth. The way he taught is as intrinsic as the content of what he taught. You're now sufficiently, uh, in my mind, opaque that I'm not sure my comment will be of particular relevance. But I have noticed in New York City uh, that a church that was begun about 15 years ago, the Neymar Presbyterian Church, begun uh, by a uh, student of uh, Tolkien, uh, his book, The Lord of the Rings, is his textbook. Uh, it sort of goes back and forth between uh, well, Hunter College Auditorium is where it started, and that's a very sort of utilitarian you know, space, and yet, and yet it's filled, whereas many of the, uh, the beautiful churches in New York City uh, that are existing by endowment only uh, have been hollowed out of their, of their congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, I, I thought to myself as you were talking about that, that that was at least a uh, potentially worthwhile observation. The second thing is I would, uh, I would suggest to you that efficiency and beauty in the Gettysburg Address existed side by side. Yep. Yep. And in the words of Jesus. Astonishing efficiency. All the words that we know Jesus ever spoke could be printed on a single page of a newspaper. Yeah. The blending of, uh, of art and language we see in our contemporary society, the ugliness of art, so much art. Uh, we also see the ugliness of so much language. Mm-hmm. And the adulteration of the sacred through use of the profane. Very common. I think a rather untalented and crude and not very funny comedian has become deservedly famous because of a single word, Rodney Dangerfield's line, I don't get no respect. Respect, that's what's gone. Respect for language loving respect. Compare the language of the daily newspaper in 1900 with the language of the daily newspaper a century later. These people who read the newspaper did not have half the education we have, and yet their language was beautiful, exalted, well done. My college students couldn't write that kind of language. You mentioned about uh, Heidegger and also about uh, Orwell, and and I, I can't remember the source, but there was a quote to the effect that we won't have control over the culture until we control the language. Yes. And Nietzsche said, we atheists will not be done killing God until we have killed grammar. That's the quote. Yes, thank you. Thank you. can remember. Thank you. <laughs> can you comment on the music at the movies? The Lord of the Rings I loved it. it. It was not intrusive. I thought a little bit of the music in The Passion was too intrusive too overtly sentimental and manipulative, not badly. It was fairly well done. I'd give it only an A minus. I'd give Tolkien's music an A. And if you asked me before I had ever seen the movie, do you think you could get a good background from people like Enya? I would say, no way. Yeah. Yeah. Or who else? Bjork? 
you don't think of that as a fitting background, but it is. It works. I don't know how it works or why it works, but it works. In fact, I think now, which movies do I watch over and over again? Well, a variety of them. But one thing common to all of them, I think, except one, is that they have great scores. Uh, the Last of the Mohicans is one. Lord of the Rings is one. Oh, I won't bore you with the other ones. But... <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> I feel the BBC radio version uh, captured the melodies for the songs better. Uh, the, the melodies they gave to the songs seemed a bit better than any other adaptation I've heard of those. Well, you don't have many of the songs in the movie. True. There are a few, but not many. Yeah. Um, about using people's names and calling them their presence, and it seems to me to be musical that if being is in language, um, the person being is shared in by that language that... Um, it's like two strings um, uh, echoing one another. If I pluck one string, the other string will sound. And so there's a pulling together of the two. That is an incredibly important scientific principle which present-day cosmologists are working on, and many think it is going to be the key to the theory of everything. If there's a subatomic particle that is by nature one but is separable and you violently and artificially separate the two particles and send them spinning off in opposite directions no matter how much time and how much space emerge between those two particles if one is in another galaxy a thousand years from now as soon as you alter one particle there is a corresponding alteration in the other one that has no known physical cause like mental telepathy between the particles now String theory supposedly explains that, but string theory is another way of saying everything is a wave, and a wave is the form of music. It's interesting that uh, uh, John Polkinghorne and others uh, that have been you know, particle physicists and what have you do talk about that concept, but also talk about beauty and language, and that you were talking about music, poetry, prose, and then mathematics. You know, I can't recall if you even named the person there for bringing his power to play here. But uh, in that interview, uh, they mentioned uh, a mathematician who uh, always spoke about looking first for the beauty of the formula. Yes. And that uh, a formula that is beautiful is, is virtually always true. One of fact, has his most beautiful yep. formula on his gravestone. Yep. That's true. Right. There's a book an old book, it's at least 50 years old, by a man named Scott Buchanan. It's called Poetry and Mathematics. And it's a fairly obscure book, but the basic concept is fascinating, namely that what happens in the mind when you create great poetry and what happens in the mind when you make discoveries in mathematics is identical. That there's a kind of holistic two-hemisphere thought at the root of all great poetry and at the root of all great mathematical discoveries. And it's not as we conventionally think the two hemispheres are so opposite that one works without the other. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that the word commonly used to describe these equations, the term used is frequently elegant. Yeah. Because they're, you know, where it's the Boltzmann's equations or Planck's or uh, Einstein's general theory, it, they have a simplicity and elegance to them. This illuminates 
a traumatic event in my life. In high school, I was pretty good at every subject until I got to geometry and we studied Euclid. And the guy who taught it was a Marine. He was a good guy and a good teacher, but it was drill. I hated it. Not only did I hate it, I, I'm lazy, I hate things. I hated Latin when I first learned it because of all the memorization. Now I love it because of its beauty, but I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. I was flunking the course. I went through two or three books because I would throw them at the wall and break the spine in frustration. And then, years later, I read Euclid uh, in order to teach Greek philosophy. I wanted some of the background, and I fell in love with it. I said, it is beautiful. Approach Euclid's elements as a poet, and you sympathize with Phyllis McGinley's line, Euclid alone has looked on beauty bare. But look at it in a utilitarian way, and it's frustratingly ugly. Maybe someday I'll come to see computers that way. <laughs> Not yet. Is egalitarianism sort of the main culprit here? Would you comment generally on that? It's a culprit because an egalitarian is also going to be a utilitarian and a worshiper of efficiency as well as equality, and there's nothing beautiful. There's something good in efficiency, relatively good. There's nothing good in equality except as a remedy for inequality. So a world that's totally equal would be a world in which the second law of thermodynamics is the Lord. All things are homogeneous, and you can say nothing about anything because everything is equal. That's the end of beauty. I think C.S. Lewis says somewhere, here is a sentence that no man who ever uttered it really believed it. I'm just as good as you are. Yes, and the Silmarillion, Miena, is the master of sadness and also the master of beauty. Why do we find tragedies more beautiful than comedies? Why do we find music in a minor key more beautiful than music in a major key? I don't know the answer, but I know that's a great question. It has something to do with Christ. It has something to do with what happened 2,000 years ago. Yes, but even in Unfallen Eden, I think there were ignitions of longing, but they didn't include pain or sadness. And yet Eden was probably not their final state. If Lewis's take on that is correct. Yeah. Maybe an anticipation of was kind of longing. Well, there's longing and there's longing. The longing of the good for the better is one thing. The longing of the ungood for the good is another thing. The longing of the evil for the evil is a third thing. That's a dark longing. We're in the second longing. Adam and Eve were in the first one. That's a fascinating question. Why is sadness so beautiful? It certainly is. No question about that. My comparison between Mother Teresa and Madonna. Those lines are lines of suffering. They're beautiful. Uh, yeah. Um, in terms of you were talking about why is it the major key beautiful? Might be because we're falsifying or misproperly using the major key. Just like with words, use the improper sounding word to address a being. Perhaps we've used music so poorly that all the being that's there in music is not directed towards its right place. We're, we're confused. Well, there's a difference between misusing it and only using it in a kindergarten way. I mean, very few, if any of us, are experts in this field. I would say that Muzak is a misuse of music. But, well, let's contrast 
classical with romantic music. Classical music always starts at home and returns to home. Romantic music doesn't. It gets home in the end, but there's the beauty of, of dissonance. Now, I don't know how personal this is, but like C.S. Lewis, I love romantic music. I think Beethoven is superior even to Bach, even though I adore Bach. I, I expect that in heaven, the angels will sing Bach, and they'll envy us our understanding of Beethoven. The unfallen angels don't have to go through the first movements of the Ninth Symphony to get to the Ode to Joy, but we do. By the way, I had a dream once, almost the closest I ever had to a heavenly vision. I was in a white robe, and I knew I was in heaven because I was in an enormous cathedral, and there were thousands of other white-robed people next to me. People, not angels. And we all had pieces of paper in front of us. And I saw that there was music on the paper, but I couldn't read the music. And the cathedral was enormous, and people were talking together. And I tried to ask, what's happening? Who, where are we? What are we supposed to be doing? And then everyone hushed. The person next to me says, shh, he's coming. I thought it was God. And the front doors of the cathedral, miles away, opened. And in stumbled a little, fat, ugly, confused, barbarian-looking man. It was Beethoven. We all broke into the chorus from the Ode to Joy to welcome him to heaven. <laughs> so I wasn't hearing his music. I was singing it. Just thought I'd share that with you. Doesn't doesn't prove anything, but <laughs> is there anything in music or word uh, that comes out of modernists that you would uh, find attractive? By modernists, I mean let's take 20th century uh, as the modern period. I will confess my limitations here. I believe that there are many things that I should find attractive, especially in in musicians like like Pear or uh, Gorecki, but I haven't yet educated my sentiments that far. I've gone as far as Sibelius. <laughs> Somebody once said that Aquinas thought that a frog was more beautiful than a flower because it was more ordered. Of course. But I don't think that most of us would look at a frog as being more beautiful than a flower. But oh, I think Aquinas is right. I think we're wrong. Is the premise correct that the more ordered something is, the more beautiful it is? If the order is natural, yes. If the order is artificial, like in a prison, no. I think there might be a misreading of what true order is. Because I know like, in, when I write music, it seems like the things that I might consider, at least on the superficial level, that are ordered, don't strike me as much beautiful as the things that are more unpredictable and have a certain mm -hmm. indescribable... Unpredictability is a subjective and relative concept. Order is an objective metaphysical concept. So there's more order in a frog, but there's also more simplicity in a frog because a frog's soul is a little closer to a human soul. It can't quite say ah yet, but it's got something like a personality, much more than a flower does. So it, it has a more powerful single soul integrating a more complex series of parts than a flower, and a flower more than a rock, and we more than a frog, and God more than we. Therefore, God is the most complex being in all reality the most ordered, and at the same time, the most simple, the most absolutely simple. Well, why is it that our normal experience, it seems, at least on the surface, most people would perceive flower? Because we're projecting our own emotional reactions on things. And since we find frogs yucky and flowers cute, we relate to yuckiness and cuteness rather than frogness and flowerness. Yeah, I don't know about that. Take a mosquito. Take a mosquito. Uh, or compare a spider with a spider web. 
We love spider webs. They're beautiful geometrical figures, but we hate spiders. Yet there's much more order in a spider than in the web. Now, suppose you're not afraid of the spider anymore. Suppose the spider's dead and you're looking at it under a microscope. There's much more beauty in that thing that you're looking at under the microscope when you look at a spider than when you look at a spider web. But we're afraid of the spider and not of the web, and we project our fear onto the thing. We say, oh, that's ugly because I fear it. The reaction of a child to a flower and a frog is might be educational. The, the child uh, may immediately take to the flower and, and initially recoil to the frog, but, but they quickly warm to the frog, and then, be, then their interest is maintained longer with the frog than with the flower. That's because the frog can initiate or respond in a kind of a dialogue more than the flower can. And we find ourselves only in dialogue. God made us to have eyes that gradually become themselves, and the only way they can become themselves is in a dialogic Trinitarian relationship. Frogs do that better than flowers. People do it best of all. So would you say that the dialogue is more beautiful? Yes. Yes. Well, here is where you can't really compare anymore. You can compare stones and frogs and flowers and people and angels and the persons of the Trinity, but you can't really compare the divine nature and the divine persons and say which one is more anything. You can compare the divine nature and the angelic nature and the frog nature and human nature, or you can compare the divine person and the human person and the frog semi-person, but you can't compare person and nature. Boy, we got into some deep philosophy here. <laughs> I'm not complaining. You talk about the inexhaustibleness of good art. One of the attributes mm. that I've always found fascinating is how certain music I never seem to get enough of it. Whereas other music I appreciate and I recognize it as great, but it doesn't have that eternalness to it. And is that because the former reflects God in a certain way? Not only reflects God, is inspired by God. Divine inspiration, unless you're a deist, is not a past event. It's a present, ongoing event. So if God keeps breathing in great music, you keep breathing too, and you're never bored. If the breathing is done, then however great and big it is, there's an end to it. And finally, you're exhausted. You say, now I've heard that 200 times, I don't want to hear it a 201st time. So... It seems to me that there is, as you say, music that is literally inexhaustible. And that there's some books that are inexhaustible. That's my definition of a classic. A classic is a book that rewards endlessly repeated rereading. I guess ultimately, when you're married to somebody, hopefully the relationship is inexhaustible in the same sort of way. Yes, and in that case, it depends on your attitude. If you see that other person as an object, however good and true and beautiful, eventually there are limits and you're disappointed by the limits. If you see that person as an image of God, as an unpredictable person, and not the person's words or deeds or looks or acts, but the person himself, the I, if that's the object that you relate to, that is literally inexhaustible. That's why so many of the saints and mystics use marriage as a symbol for the beatific vision. I remember I had a crisis of faith when I was a teenager. I didn't want to go to heaven because I thought it would be a church service and I knew I'd be bored. But I didn't want to go to hell either. And they said there's no third place and you can't live forever. Boredom is a big problem in the modern world. I think it's one of the main causes of war. So 
What is there in this world that doesn't get boring? That's a good image of heaven. Well, the saint's favorite answer to that question is marriage. Because there you're most totally and intimately related to the thing that is the holiest thing in the world, an image of God. Now, it's very easy to relate to that as anything other than the eye. Because the eye cannot be objectified, pinned down. It escapes everything. It's the image of God, for goodness sakes, whose name is I. But insofar as you do relate to that I, insofar as you love and will the good of the I qua I, you're in for the most absolutely inexhaustible foretaste of heaven possible. What is there in this world that does not get boring? Another person truly loved for their own sake.